Well, good morning, everybody. It's kind of fun to be up here, I gotta be honest. So I just gotta tell you, one of the, the healthiest things we do as a, as a church here at Windsor Road is that we give our lead pastor a study break. So he's gone. And uh, when that happens, he has to ask other people to come and fill in. And I got tapped first. Now, what's kind of funny sometimes is that he often gives people direction of what he wants them to talk about. And my wife said, is he going to ask you to speak about time management? And I said, no. And uh, he actually didn't give me a topic, but asked me just to, uh, just to speak today. And I said, okay, sure. I said, you sure I can choose whatever I want to choose? And he says, yeah. And I said, all right. So while Randy is gone uh, for a little while, which is what's great about it, is he's going to be doing a lot of studying, preparing us for the whole next year. And uh, that's just, it's an amazing thing that we're able to do that here. Uh, you've got me, and I have a job today. My job is to not lose any members. So we're going we're gonna to have fun uh, talking today about uh, what I've got prepared for you. So, but I'm, I'm Eric Snodgrass, and I'm one of the elders uh, here at Windsor Road. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit today about light. That's what I figured we'd have fun doing. So let me pray, and we'll get started, all right? God, we are gathered. We're gathered here, and we know that you are present. Uh, we just ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit and transform our lives Help me to be that conduit to convey your word into these ears and leave us changed today. We just ask all this in your name. Amen. So, in 1990, I was 10 years old, and NASA successfully launched the Hubble Space Telescope, right? They put it into low Earth orbit. That's about 330 miles above uh, the Earth's surface. And the goal was to put this giant telescope up there so it could peer deep into space with this big, uh, almost three-foot diameter uh, mirror, excuse me, seven-foot diameter mirror. And what it was designed to do was to get away from Earth, away from all the light pollution of Earth, and to be able to see light that was coming to Earth from billions of years ago. And when it went up there, it was incredible. In fact, we started to see some images uh, just like this, this first image up here. Right, right when we got the first, this was 1990, I was 10, this, this was 32 years ago that we saw stuff like this um, from space. Now, the, the imagery here uh, showed us something we'd never seen, never seen before, and like I said, we were detecting light from incredible distances, from, from stars uh, and galaxies that were being born, and, and they were decaying, and it was something we'd never seen before, but I'm sure many of you that were around during that time remember there was a little problem with Hubble, right? The big mirror... Uh, was too flat. NASA made a bit of a mistake when they engineered the mirror. Uh, you want to know how big their mistake was that made these pictures not as clear as they all wanted them to be? The mirror was off plane by one eleven thousandth of an inch. And everybody made fun of NASA because of the little blunder. Uh, it was picked up on Saturday Night Live. The C Congress even questioned the funding of NASA because they couldn't build the... Uh, you know, the mirror to be to the specification allowed us to clearly see light from distant galaxies and, and stars. Uh, so we decided to fix it. Now, we fix these instruments with lots of different things, like LASIK surgery, right? Just peel off a layer, and you'll be able to see a little clearer. And that was what the idea was. Let's go up there and just peel off a layer of that mirror. But you can't exactly do that in outer space. So they put on a pair of glasses, and the pair of glasses that they engineered for the satellite all of a sudden brought into view some of the most breathtaking images like the one you're seeing here. And for 30 plus years, we've been on this just massive 
mission of, of, of learning and exploration about uh, creation. We're just discovering with this big spyglass all of the amazing uh, splendor of creation. Now, why did I start with Hubble today? I'm sure you all heard that in the last week, we got a new one, right? Did you all hear about the James Webb uh, Space Telescope? This is a little bit bigger. Um, its main mirror is actually 21 feet uh, in diameter, which is, is quite, a, um, quite a feat in itself just to get that up there. Uh, they got the mirrors right this time. There's no imperfection. They're actually uh, looking at things very, very clearly. And I'd like to show you what some of those images look like here. So this is some of the first that we've seen. Now, it turns out this isn't visible light. That's actually infrared light, and we've kind of modified it to show us what it would look like uh, in the visible. Visible is very, very faint light, hard to detect from, from far away. Uh, but uh, this, this particular uh, one, my next image here, just is absolutely incredible. I don't know about you, but I can't look at this stuff for just a second. Like when these images come out and we see these far-off distant places, does it not just scream that something's behind all this? I mean, I've studied in detail and in depth science for 30 years, and every single day when I wake up, I find some new component of how it all works, and I just, I'm blown away by what creation looks like. This is not some artist's rendering. This is it. Like, that's what's out there, and we can't see it through our atmosphere. It's a little hazy, but out there we can see some amazing things. So God made us to be curious about his creation, and he wants us to endeavor in a study of his glory. I really feel that that is part of our mission. You know, we're image bearers, and by design, we are, we're made to create, and we're made to explore creation. And the thing that I'm most fascinated with are the languages that God used to kind of stitch this all together. We call it chemistry and physics and mathematics. And while some of you might be sweating in your seats right now thinking that I'm going to go into all of that, do not worry. I only have one equation today, and I think you already know what it is, so it won't be that bad. But it's that three-part language that kind of brought all this into existence. This is what God breathes. Do you understand that? This is how he did things, and I'm just fascinated with it. So let's talk a bit about science and the scientific method. You probably are familiar with this because I'm assuming most of us got out of the seventh grade when we learned that. Uh, but it's an idea. It's a method of observation. You then go into observation. You then go into uh, developing a hypothesis, right? And then you measure and you experiment. And then you just keep doing it over and over again, refining the idea about how something you're observing works. Now, you, as you know, it's very slow and painful. It takes a long time. But we often learn more from what we get wrong than what we get right. I just remember about a month ago, I was sitting at my computer. My Now, it's her birthday. My daughter turned 13 yesterday, okay? She, she came up behind me, and she says, Dad, what are you doing? And I was writing some software, and she's looking at my screen, and she's like, what is all of that? And I was like, well, that is used to make this, and I showed her what it made, and she's like, how did you learn to do that? And I said, Amelia, I actually found every possible wrong way to do this first, and this is how it finally worked at the end. And that's kind of what we do. And just thinking about it in, in that vein, I want to talk a bit about maybe the, the history of this. Because if you think about us as humans, we do have at our very core a desire to understand and also a desire to control. Would you agree with me on that? Desire to understand and control. Uh, we don't like to just exist. We like to have influence on our existence. That's, that's actually one of our greatest gifts from God, but it's also one that is often uh, distorted. 
And I can give you many, many examples of these, but the one that, of course, we hear so much about, especially as you read through the New Testament, would be uh, the one that comes from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? There's always a conflict between Jesus and his followers and the Pharisees and Sadducees. And when we think about that conflict, one side of it was about gaining and keeping control through the observance and creation of law. And the other side was freeing you from the law through a new path to salvation. But we all know James 10. James 10 has been preached from this pulpit hundreds of times. James 2.10, excuse me, is forever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And what the Sadducees and the Pharisees would continue to do is to cover the fact that they couldn't keep the law. They kept making new ones. And as a result, they maintained control, and it was that control that eventually led uh, to the crucifixion of of Christ. Now, let's come back a bit from that idea to science, okay? Um, Throughout the last 2,000 years, we've made some very amazing discovery about God's creation, and a lot of times that didn't mess, uh, mesh excuse me, too well with the church. Uh, one of my favorite examples uh, comes from Copernicus, 16th century uh, mathematician and scientist, and he proposed a new idea, brand new to all of us, about how the earth worked. Uh, because up until that point, the earth was thought to be the center of the universe, and everything kind of revolved around the earth. And he says, well, I keep measuring things, in the outer space, all the stars and their movements. He goes, I don't think we're at the center. I actually think the sun is at the center of our local solar system, and we're actually orbiting around it. What I found amazing about that was, did you know that the pope, who was in charge when Copernicus said that, just said, oh, great, (laughs) let's put it in our curriculum. It was accepted, widely accepted. But then that pope left, and another one came in, and that pope didn't like that idea. And the guy that was following Copernicus, you have probably heard his name before, his name is Galileo. And that pope sent some of his guys to Galileo to say, hey, uh, if I hear you out there defending what Copernicus said, you're going to be in trouble. And Galileo said, but how can I not defend truth? So he did it. He he talked about the fact that the earth wasn't the center of all this. We were orbiting a sun. So the pope put him on house arrest for the rest of his life. That's where Galileo did all of his work in his house under arrest. It's just amazing to think about that. You know, today we don't have any problem thinking about the earth not being the center of the universe. It doesn't make us question our faith. But throughout history, you'll hear lots of stories uh, about how science and faith kind of divorce from one another. And, And when you think about the relationship that science and faith has had, oftentimes I could tell you that it was either a lack of communication or a lack of empathy. There wasn't time given to kind of understand where each person was coming from. And what happened is that both sides doubled down and the divide often widened uh, with time. And that's kind of been an interesting part of of our history just in in the last few centuries. But I would make a case to say that in reality, all right, science and faith are both searching for the same thing. And that thing we're searching for is, is evidence. Would you agree with me on that? Evidence. You know, in faith, we want evidence of God, our creator, and of salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And we show up here all the time learning about it and exploring it in our lives. And in science, it's a search for evidence on how and why things work the way that they work. And therefore, we're both striving in the same vein. And I would make a a strong argument uh, that these two things are often intertwined and combined in ways that sometimes you don't get to see. And I hope today I get to give you a little bit of that in a couple moments here. 
Now, I want to tell you something about this. I uh, am not going to make the Bible something that it is not. It is not a textbook on quantum mechanics. So don't look at it and try to read it, hoping you're going to find something that will help you pass that class. But I do want to tell you that this is a book of books that are peer-reviewed. Now, think about that. In science, we peer-review every literature, every, every article that goes out in reputable journals such that my colleagues have to approve of the work I did to know that it is, at that point in time, scientific truth. We've been peer-reviewing the New Testament for 21 centuries. And it's amazing how it has stood up to time. And it's amazing that I can show up here today and give you a new perspective on John 1 that maybe a lot of you have never even thought about. That's what's amazing about this book here. So, what I want to do today in my time that remains is give you a physicist's view of John 1. Maybe just a new way uh, to read it. Because I've been fascinated with light uh, and time as long as I can remember. And while today we're going to focus on the topic of light, if this all goes well, Randy, I don't know if you're watching right now, but you might invite me back to talk about time at some other point, because I think that would be a good one as well. But i got to tell you a story about 1990, because when Hubble went up, I was in the fifth grade, and I had a teacher, his name was Mr. Gladson. And Mr. Gladson gave us this incredible class project. It was part of social studies uh, and geography. And uh, the idea was we had to choose a state in the United States, uh, and we had to do two things. We had to write a very brief like, article, like, like, like an encyclopedia article about the state, and then we had to make a cardboard cutout of our state, which we colored on and labeled all sorts of things. Uh, here's the thing about this particular assignment. We were not allowed to take it home. Uh, Mr. Gladson did not want any of our parents doing our assignment for us. So we all worked on it together in the classroom, uh, and it was just this enthralling uh, class assignment that I still remember to this day. Do you all have one of those assignments, like that family tree you did in the seventh grade, or I don't know how many of you have built volcanoes or whatever, but like, you, just, you just absorbed into it, and that's how I was. And for me, this was all about the geography part of the assignment because I absolutely love maps. Um, and half of that assignment was to make a big, a big map of my state. And I got Florida. That was the state that I chose, all right? Now, mom and dad bought me the supplies, but I had to do it all at school. And I cut out Florida, and then I began to label. Like, I found Miami and labeled it. I drew, like, the Disneyland castle, or Disney World castle, excuse me, over Orlando, labeled the panhandle, you know, and all the different cities, and then I set to work on the, like the industries, right? So uh, I had all the, the orange groves all drawn in there, and then I got to the southern part of the state, and there I got to draw uh, Lake Okeechobee. What a great name for a lake. It's a big lake in the middle of Florida, and then at the very bottom, you know, I was drawn through all of the Everglades. Now, we had these, like, updated progress uh, checks with our assignment. And Mr. Gladstone was having each of us come up in front of the room uh, and show our, you know, our states. And I got up to the front of the room, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is A-plus work. This might even be that coveted, like, A-plus-plus work. I thought Mr. Gladstone was going to take my map of Florida, probably, you know, uh, put it into a frame and, and show it to future generations of students because I had, I just was into it. And none of that happened. In fact... I failed round one. Mr. Gladson looks at my, my picture of Florida here, and I saw this look on his face, and I knew it was, like, not good. You know that look from teachers? They're like, uh, you're going to be in trouble. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> He's like, Eric, have a seat. And I'm like, what, what's going on? I was, I was really upset. And he says, uh, 
Eric, look at your map. And I looked at my map, and he said, uh, why is Lake Okeechobee purple? And your Everglades are brown. And you colored in all of your oranges red. And I looked at my map, and I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he writes me a little hall pass. Remember the yellow paper hall passes? I got one to go see Mr. Shaw. Mr. Shaw was the art teacher at our school. And he wrote on that little notepad, Ishihara. And I walked down to Mr. Shaw's office, and this is what I saw next. You'll see it up here on the screen. If any of you have ever taken one of these, this is a colorblindness test. Now, I don't know how good this projector is. Some of you might be able to see numbers inside of those uh, circles. <laughs> I cannot. There's nothing in any of them. I chose the worst ones. I have no idea what we're looking at here. Now, if any of you are finding yourself failing the colorblindness test right now, we can talk uh, after this. Uh, I'll just be outside these doors in the fireside room. Uh, and uh, I'd be more than happy to, to talk with you about this. But it was funny because the moment I got back and it became public knowledge that little Eric Snodgrass was colorblind, uh, we went through a several-week time period of everybody asking me to tell them what the color of stuff was. So I'm going to ask you all to not do that out there. Um, there's an app that you can all download that will show you exactly what it looks like to see through my eyes. Now, there's a really sad part to this story, uh, and the sad part is not the fact that I found out that I was colorblind, but do you remember how we had to do the project at school? Okay. My parents bought me Crayola markers to do this. And Crayola markers are all labeled, <laughs> which meant <laughs> I'm surprised I even graduated school <laughs> because all I would have had to do was look at that red and realize it was, not re or it was red and not orange. But I'm going to tell you, I did not know, uh, I cannot see the shade of pink. It looks gray to me. I've been told that our previous president is orange. He looks yellow to me. Uh, and when the Illini play Wisconsin or Indiana in basketball and they wear red, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> but that's my life. And what's funny is, ironically, I've spent a decade after high school and college and graduate school, and now an almost 20-year career, um, studying things with lots and lots of color. I'm a meteorologist, a colorblind meteorologist, and I spend my days making thousands and thousands of maps full of color that I cannot see. I'll show them this next animation here. Uh, this animation here, if it'll play for you, is one I made this morning. This is, uh, looks like it's stuck there. Oh, no, it's gone. This is uh, simulated radar. You know, you all open your phones and you see like, oh, the future radar. Well, we make that. That, that. That's us. And this is what I was looking forward to today, getting a little more rain out of this. I cannot see that color bar. Just so you all know, I have to make it and have somebody that can see it approve it, and then, and then we go forward. And what's really funny is right after a sermon today, I have to go to Chicago and fly to Virginia where tomorrow i got to give a talk where I'm going to show lots of maps with lots of color and amazing things. And I'll be in South Dakota on Tuesday, and I just got back from Idaho. And uh, I've traveled the world showing people beautiful, colorful maps, and none of them know that I can't see it. So please uh, don't tell anybody. And if you wouldn't mind, edit that out of the, uh, of the sermon today. But when you think about all of this, what I want to do with what I have left in this teaching time, now that you kind of see where I'm going to come from, as I want to show you here uh, and just kind of nerd out for a few minutes about just how awesome the God is that gave us color and allows us to see light. So let's talk about it, okay? 
Uh, we're going to start in John, John 1, 1 through 9. And it's funny, I had the privilege of studying with a group of men at this church uh, in, a, in a Sunday morning Bible study for I don't know how many years now, but I think we spent nearly three years uh, studying John. Uh, that's how long it took us to get through it. There's just so much content. And when we read John 1, 1, uh, I read it in a way, this was a few years ago, that I had never, ever seen those verses. And I want to share with you kind of what I saw there. Because light is referenced so many times uh, throughout the beginning of that. And I'm not really sure uh, that the author of John uh, didn't dabble in a bit of physics, but every single thing that he wrote is consistent with what we understand uh, about light. Um, so it's, uh, it's inspired work in so many different levels. So let's read this, okay? Or actually, I'm going to read it. And ironically, I have to put on my own bit of corrective lenses so that I can even see the words of my Bible. So I'm going to read to you John 1, 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, but many of you have also read Genesis 1.3, and that's a pretty famous line in the Bible. I imagine most of us could recite it as a child. It's that first one, let, let there be light. And I'm going to talk to you a bit about the creation story here for a few moments because as Moses wrote down the oral tradition of how the world was created, I am fascinated by the consistency in his words with modern scientific thought on light. Now, what is light? We need to make sure we understand this, okay? Uh, I am sorry if this gets a shade too nerdy, but here we go. It's created, okay? When light is created as an energetic particle, we call it a photon. And those photons of light are emitted from an atom. Okay? The photons emitted when the atom is excited, when it's transformed, or when some chemical process happens to the atom. What happens is it releases these photons of light that these little detectors in your face can see. So some really simple ones to think about, like the incandescent light bulb, all right? So you have a filament. It's made of tungsten. We pass electricity through that because of the high resistivity of tungsten. Uh, it's hard to get the electricity to go through it, so it glows. In fact, it glows about 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit. And when you see it, you're seeing the light emitted from the constant excitement of the tungsten. Uh, how about fire? It's kind of funny. I asked a group of students a number of years ago if anybody knew what fire was, and nobody can actually give you a good definition of that when you're talking to a young group of college students, but I'm going to tell you, fire is the rapid oxidization of a combustible material. What happens when we light fire is that the carbon molecules in the wood are excited through heat, and their electrons jump to an outer shell, and when they come back down, they release all that heat in a photon of light. And that's why you can sit there and stare at the fire. And no, I don't know why psychologically we find ourselves just staring at fire. We still do it to this day, even though we've had it for a very long time. Now, I could keep going on and on about these things. But if you've noticed something in what I've discussed with you for a few moments here, 
It's that every time I talked about light, just in those brief descriptions, it was attached to something. Matter, right? There was the tungsten or, or the wood. Light and matter are intricately uh, related. So when I think about in the beginning there was light, and then John 1.3, which says, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made, or nothing has been made, I sit there and say, of course the Bible started this way, with God and light, and light being the creative tool that God used to bring matter and material and stuff into existence. Now, the heart of what I do every single day is to study temperature, how it changes, what the temperature of the earth is, because earth's atmosphere and the motion of that atmosphere is a consequence of uneven heating. It's hotter along the equator and colder along the poles. I don't think I have to convince any of you of that. You know what that does? That drives wind. And wind moves the air around, and it changes the property of the air to bring about, well, different flavors of moisture. We, we produce precipitation. We, we, we shift things around by the fact that the earth is unevenly heated. I don't know if you knew this, but the hottest temperature ever measured on earth by human was actually in Death Valley in California. It was back in 1913 in July, 134 Fahrenheit. Now, that's not the ground temperature. Standard atmospheric temperature is taken at two meters right about here. It's 134. The coldest was in Vostok, Antarctica, and down there, the temperatures were down to minus 129. That's really cold. Just so you know, if you went to Vostok, which you can, and you went outside, and there was a five-mile-an-hour wind, and you left an ungloved hand out, it freezes in 30 seconds. Like solid. It's done. <laughs> you don't get that back. Now, how many of you, when you were kids, were taught about some idea, or in school, called absolute zero? You ever heard of this before? Can you just show me? I'm just curious. Absolute zero does the word. Okay, that rings a bell. When I heard about absolute zero and the fact that its value is minus 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit, I wanted to know what the heck that was. And so do a lot of scientists. You see, that particular temperature is the coldest temperature we think we could ever make a substance get to. Now listen to this, okay? This blows my mind, so I hope it does yours. A few years ago, like 11, my then two-year-old daughter was sitting at our dinner table, and if you know two-year-olds, they can't stop moving. Would you agree? They wiggle all the time. Okay. I decided that I would put on the dad scientist hat when mom was away, and I said, Amelia, come here, listen. Now, she's two. And I said, if anybody ever tells you to stop wiggling, you tell them that you can't. Because if you were to truly stop wiggling, you'd cease to exist. She doesn't remember this. I checked last night, uh, and that's good. <laughs> but I remember telling her, and this is the reason why. Everything, and I'm, that's a, not just a blanket term, I'm serious. Everything at the molecular level is wiggling. You think this is solid state? No, no, no. It, it, it feels solid, but the molecules that make up this thing, this lectern here, they're wiggling. They're vibrating. Absolute zero is theoretical because if we take something down to that temperature all the molecular vibration stops. And if it stops, it quits emitting light. And if it quits emitting light, it technically has no mass and doesn't exist. So we can't go past it. Do you understand what I'm telling you? God created light and matter to go hand in hand. It's no wonder the first verse in the Bible, the third verse in the Bible, is about him doing that first. 
I find it absolutely crazy and just amazing uh, to think about that. So here's kind of the, the, the mind bender for this, all right? John 1.3 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You know the first principles of chemistry and physics? Do you know what they are? They're two very simple ideas. They're the principles of the conservation of mass and the conservation of energy. Do you realize when it started, everything that is in existence came about the moment he started it? It's transformed, it's changed over time, but the amount of mass and the amount of energy has stayed the same. Now, from a geek like me, I'm like, of course he did. Because if he didn't build it that way, it wouldn't be in equilibrium, it wouldn't be steady, it would decay or it would grow out of control. He made it perfect from the very beginning, and he made all those objects capable uh, of emitting that light. Sorry, but that's pretty cool stuff. I don't care what you think. <laughs> I've stayed up many a nights just thinking about that. I mean, gosh. Well, we get to John 1, 4, and this is a part where we get into life and consciousness. I love this. In John 1, 4, he said, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, if you really want to have the screws in your head turned real tight, don't bring a physicist up here. Bring a biologist up here. Let them talk to you about consciousness and how all of this works. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. But there's some pretty deep meaning to those verses, and I'm going to tell you what I read when I see John 1.4. I say, first, it's a proclamation that we are image bearers, and we come from that light, that creation. And we've been here the whole time. It's about the illumination and exposure and destruction of sin, and it speaks of Jesus as this source of eternal light. We need to keep that in mind as we go forward. But what's interesting is the who this was written to, the first century Christians, they would have heard that phrasing of light and immediately been comparing it to darkness. That was what was done. We still do that today. And I want to talk to you a bit about darkness. Now, darkness is a condition that's unique to species that have eyes. You understand that? Like, we only know of darkness because we, we see light. So when it's not there, these little passive sensors inside of our head can't see it. Now, the eyeballs that you all have are pretty cool instruments. They're designed to see this one little narrow band of the whole electromagnetic spectrum. It's called the visible band. Uh, you learned about it called Roy G. Biv. Remember that? Okay, I won't say it. Roy G. Biv. What's amazing, and I hope you like this, is the design of the eye. So before we get into to, to, to darkness, I want you to think about this. Our nearest star is the sun, right? And at the middle of our sun, there's a 20 million degree furnace. We're taking hydrogen and fusing it to become helium, and it releases tremendous quantities of energy. Einstein understood this. He gave you the equation. This is the only one today. E equals mc squared. M is mass, C is the speed of light. There's no energy without mass and light. And it also says there's, there's a ton of energy inside of tiny bits of mass. So as we're taking hydrogen and fusing it to make helium, all that heat's released. Now what you see when you look at the sun is the photosphere, the part on the outside. And the photosphere is about 10,000 Fahrenheit. Now this is what's neat about objects that have a temperature of 10,000 Fahrenheit. Their wavelength at which they produce their peak intensity of light is in the visible portion of the spectrum. And maybe as kids you learned that it takes about eight minutes for that light to go from the sun 
to the earth. Now watch what happens when it gets here. It then collides with our atmosphere, which is full of oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and water vapor and, and ozone. And that light comes in, and God designed oxygen to do some pretty amazing things. They designed it to be very reactive. If you're unaware of what I mean by this, go out and look at some of your vehicles. That's all oxygen that's making the rust on all of them, okay? Well, up in the atmosphere, that, that process creates a three-sided oxygen molecule we call ozone. When God made oxygen, he says, I'm going to make it so reactive, it likes to join up with other oxygen molecules such that we get three of them that look just like that. And some of that light that comes from the sun is ultraviolet. And when it smacks into that ozone molecule, it dissociates, taking the energy out of the ultraviolet light. Do you realize if he wouldn't have made oxygen, all of that UV light would come down to earth and kill everything. We can't handle UV light. So it stopped at the top. But the visible keeps coming through. In fact, as the visible light comes through, only a little bit of it actually is affected. Some of the blue light is preferentially scattered. And that's why when you're not looking at the sun and you're looking over there, you see blue. But when it gets all the way down to the surface, it heats things up, and our eyes see the bits of light that bounce off of stuff. And what's amazing about God's design is he put these little photosensors in our heads connected to a little optical nerve in the back into the big image processor, your brain, and he made it only sensitive to a little, tiny, narrow width of the whole electromagnetic spectrum that just happens to be the same peak intensity of the sun. Ah, oh, come on. I should have heard like, wow. Yeah, that's a wow moment. That, this, is, this is how God is doing things. But darkness. In John 1, 5, we read, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Some of your translations may say, the darkness has not overcome it or acquired it or taken possession of it. You see, the only way for there to be darkness is to be in the absence of light. But this is what I'm going to propose to you today. Can you ever really be absent uh, of God's light? I mean that both physically and, and metaphorically. We learned just this year from this pulpit about the meaning behind the shadow of the valley of death in Psalm 23. In fact, we all memorized that with, with, uh, with Randy. But do you remember the next line uh, in Psalm 23 after that? It says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Now, we know about that shadow, and that shadow uh, is a real place in a real valley where there was um, often people that were taking advantage of the darkness to do uh, not so good things. But I would like to show you how the fact that God engineered light proves the concept of omnipresence. Okay, you ready? You see, when you think about this, we're only talking about the visible light. We know that God likes to express himself in light. But you remember that when there's a shadow and you cannot see light, you're still surrounded by it. If I could take the lights in this room and completely extinguish them and block out everything in this room, we'd all be blind. But would we really be blind to God, the inventor of light? Because unlike our eyes, which are only sensitive to visible light, God created infrared light. And you look something like this. I brought along some pictures of what it looks to see you all in the infrared. Now, those are my students from a couple years ago, but uh, you look pretty much the same. That's my hand on a table. I then picked my hand up. You could still see the heat signature of where I was. God does not lose sight of us. <laughs> he sees our little signatures everywhere. By the way, I had to throw in the picture that you see down here in the bottom left. That's my hand on bottom and one of my students' hands on top. She has Raynaud's disease. You ever heard of this? Her fingers are cold all the time. And we measured her fingertips 
at uh, 51 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not in this particular image, but that's how cold they were. And that's one of my former students, Casey, hanging out by a computer. You see, when you are in that valley and these aren't working so well, God has that whole spectrum to keep an eye on you. And he's there with you. It is not in his nature to not be omnipresent because in every bit of mass, there is light. He made it that way. This is crazy. Now we think about Satan as being something that creeps up in the darkness. John 1.5 says, the darkness has not understood it or acquired it. And that's because Satan didn't invent light. Satan is bound and constrained by the same physical principles that I just shared with you a while ago. He can roam and he can slither, but he cannot extinguish. He's not a creator. Don't forget that. Because sometimes we make Satan parallel or at the same level as God. By the way, just as a side note, when you go home today, I would like you all to read uh, John um, 3. It's about the Pharisee Nicodemus who stole away under the cover of darkness to talk to Jesus. Jesus knew exactly when he was coming, knew exactly what he was going to ask. And that whole conversation led us to getting the verses like John 3.16 and John 3.17 and 18. But do you remember John 3.19? Where Jesus finishes after 3.16 is to say, this is the verdict, light has come into the world. Now when I try to comprehend what it means to be saved as a Christian, it begins with a full examination of the depth of my sin. And I want to thank John McGarvey for helping me think about that one. I'd make a case to say that there's freedom in knowing about the depth of your sin. And that freedom comes from understanding how sin is covered. We always talk about Jesus' blood covering us. I'd like to give you a new word picture with this, though, if you don't mind. When we think about that, I want you to think more about Jesus casting a shadow that you are behind, such that when God looks at you, you're in the shadow, and he doesn't see you. He only sees Jesus, and you better be glad that Jesus is in between, because you cannot handle the creator of light and his full glory, at least in this body. So as I get toward the very end of what I want to share with you today, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you for a couple of things and uh, the first thing has to do with reflection uh, in mirrors, okay? Now, what is reflection? Reflection is where light comes in and hits a surface and is just redirected at the same angle at which it hits. The most perfect reflectors are mirrors. That's why we made Hubble and the James Webb Telescope out of them. You make a mirror by spraying very thin layer of, of silver or, or of aluminum and other materials that are very smooth at the molecular level so that when light hits it, it bounces off at the same angle at which it uh, struck the surface. We call mirrors specular reflectors because they perfectly reflect everything incident upon them. So I got two challenges for you today. Now, Randy has asked this church many times to be attractive followers of Jesus. How do we know if we're attractive? Well, this morning when I ironed this shirt, I took a look in the mirror and I just have to thank God that Randy was not talking about physical attractiveness because I might lose my membership here uh, if that was what he was gonna use. What he meant, though, was for us to be reflectors of Christ. Now, John 1, 6 through 9, okay, the end of our passage today says this. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify 
concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Do you realize that John the Baptist was Jesus' first mirror? And that's what we're called to be. That's what a witness is. We are simply specularly reflecting Jesus. And what's good about that is I don't have to rely on my goodness or how I look in that situation. I just take whatever he gives me and give it back out. Now, one of my favorite radiation laws is called Kirchhoff's Law. It's about absorption instead of reflection. And what we learn from that law is that light, when absorbed by any object, is then emitted according to the object's properties, primarily temperature. And I thought about that law with respect to this verse here about John the Baptist, because we also want to be not only a mirror that reflects Jesus, but we want to take in what God gives us and give it back out. That's what Kirchhoff's law says. We want to take in the light from God into the thing he designed us to be and be the best version of that to his glory. For me, I'll be honest, it's just to be a giant nerd that runs around talking about the weather. But I love doing it. And I think that's what he designed me to be. So my first challenge for you is to learn to be that reflector. Here's my second one, and this is where we'll finish up today. When I travel the country talking about weather and its impact on agriculture, Illinois is often referred to as flat, black, and fertile. We have some of the best soil on the face of the earth, and the rest of the world is very jealous of what we have here. And when you look out here and leave today, you're going to run out there, and you're going to see lots and lots of corn and soybeans. And over the last month, that corn crop has grown very, very rapidly. It's been hot. In fact, some of you, some of my farmers in the audience here will tell you, we can sometimes watch a corn plant grow up to two inches a day. In fact, you can, you can hear it at times as it stretches. It's an amazing uh, thing to think about. Where did that come from? Because what did you do? You just put a seed in the ground and put some water and a little fertilizer on top of it. And in six months, we'll have up to eight tons of biomass per acre on a field that four months ago was just completely flat with nothing. If you have never allowed yourself just to marvel at the process of photosynthesis, let me do that for you today. Because if you want to see how cool God is, he came up with this idea. Sunlight smacks into that plant. And that plant opens itself up to take in a little bit of carbon dioxide. And the light smacks into those molecules and breaks that carbon off, leaving the oxygen. The carbon becomes the plant matter. And the oxygen goes out that all of us breathes. Oh, and becomes some ozone at the top, protecting us from all that nasty stuff. And it just grows, and it keeps growing. It's a transformation process. It takes in what it's given and becomes something different. And it's just amazing to think about that. And if you watch plants, go home and just watch a plant in your house. You know what the plant does all day long? It just keeps following wherever the sun is, just to take in everything that it can give it. But you know, when I think about all of this, I also think about the rest of that Genesis uh, stuff we were talking about earlier, Genesis 1, 4 through 5. If you remember, after he created light, he also created darkness. But in that vein, he was creating night. And what does corn need? Gotta shut the sun off. And this is what I love about it. At night, 
when the sun goes down, the corn plant gets to rest. And it rests just long enough because of how fast the earth spins on its axis that it's able to completely recover. And as that corn plant is resting overnight, I guarantee you it's not worried about the sun coming back out tomorrow to do it again. It doesn't. It just rests and prepares for another day of transformative light. So my second challenge is this. In the same way, we must learn to rest and rely on God. We'll be there when we sleep and when we are awake. And my challenge for you all is to learn to truly understand what it means when God asks us to rely on his daily bread. Because trust me, he's going to provide that. So I have one last story, and then I'll stop here. My last story is, I've been watching the radar all morning, and I was hoping it was going to rain right when I got to this part. (laughs) Was anybody wet when they came in today? Because yesterday, on Saturday, some of that sunlight hit the Gulf of Mexico. And one of those photons of visible light contained enough energy that it smacked into that water and dissociated one water vapor molecule from being liquid to now being uh, a water vapor. It just broke its hydrogen bond. And then a wind came out of the south and brought it all the way to the state of Illinois, along with several trillion tons of other water vapor molecules. Did you feel it last night when you went outside? It was disgusting. (laughs) I'm kind of having a quick look around the room here. Today is not a good hair day, is it? Do you know why? It all has to do with light. So all of that got brought here last night. Brewing in Iowa and in Missouri was not a south wind. It was coming out of the west. And that west wind was pushing drier and a little bit cooler air over the top of us. So they met. And all that moisture from the Gulf of Mexico, which began as just a photon of light knocking free a water vapor molecule, starts to rise. It goes up in the atmosphere. As it goes up, it starts to cool. Cooling slows down the vibration, remember all that, of that molecule. And it bumps into another water vapor molecule, and they reform a hydrogen bond to become liquid water. And I just built for you a cloud droplet. Did you see how gray things were outside? That's all from the Gulf of Mexico the other day. Now, if that keeps going up and continues to cool, at one point, gravity's going to have its way. Pull hard enough to yank that droplet, which has now grown to the size of a rain droplet, out of the sky. And it's going to fall. It's going to hit one of those leaves out there on those corn plants. And how's it designed? It's got a little bit of a cupping, right? And it hits. Gravity pulls it straight to the stalk. And the stalk pulls it all the way down to that root ball down there at the bottom, where there's fertilizer and good soil, and a root system beautifully designed to suck all that up and send it right back up the stalk, transforming it into sugar. I think it's put into a little kernel of corn. Now, we don't eat most of the corn you see out there, but some of it's sweet corn. And then later in August, some of us might show up in Urbana with a lot of butter and salt and eat. Do you realize the growing of that corn was perfectly orchestrated. And you got to listen to music and eat it and get all messy. And you don't even think about the fact that the whole system was designed to sustain. 
That's my version, by the way, if I got to rewrite a book of the Bible. That would be my version of Matthew 6, 26 through 27. You know that verse? It says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I brought one last video for you all to see here today. And what you're going to see here up on the screen, hopefully in a moment, is just that same process happening over and over and over ceaselessly. And it happens because of the building blocks that our creator, the God of this heaven and universe, came up with and started and continues to this very moment. So when you walk outside today after we're done and you see those little raindrops on your car, Will you understand that that is God preserving you? That's your daily bread. I want you to remember that. Enjoy it and delight in it because when you step back and think about it, it is awesome. The truest definition of that word. Let's pray. God, thank you for constantly revealing yourself to us. Thank you that you put us on a planet where we get to strive to know and understand you Thank you that we can glorify you through those actions. Thank you that we can find salvation in the light that you sent, who died on a cross and was risen, such that he can stand before you and you don't see me, but you see him. Can we remember that? Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.